Uh, some of you will get to be perfect for a change. And uh, no, <laughs> he's pulling your chain. So, um, but right now it's really messy. By the way, this is why we do communion the way we do it. As soon as we have communion in just a few minutes, it's going to be messy. It's crowded. It's all tangled up with people because that's what community is like. And so all the parables, when he talks about the kingdom, he's really talking about the aspect of the kingdom right now. And it's messy to look at it. It takes patience it takes faith. It takes forgiveness. It takes all kinds of things. It takes loving people that aren't very lovable. It takes loving our enemies. We've gone through a lot of parables, and today is no different. We're going to look at one in Luke 15. It's a very common one, actually. And I've used, uh, this is out of Matthew 25, if you have your Bibles or your devices. Um, and we're going we're gonna to look at the parable of the ten virgins, five of which had oil and five of which did not have oil. Okay? Because this is uh, related very much to life in this fallen world. We've used the image, I got it from Edith Schaefer, gosh, 40 years ago, um, of a tapestry. And this is what a tapestry looks like in our part of the kingdom here. On the backside of a tapestry, how many of you ever have seen a tapestry? Let me ask you that question. Okay, I assume that everybody knows. On the backside, it's real messy. You've got threads and hanging out and all kinds of stuff. When you look at the front side, it's really beautiful. Well, what we see is on the back side. What Jesus sees is on the front side when he looks at the church. That's what he sees. There's no way I can overstate how proud he is of you. I just can't overstate that. How loving he is. How kind. You think of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Those are, those are all attributes that come directly from God. God can only give out of who he is. And so the fruit of the Spirit described, it's the perfect description of who God is, is the fruit of the Spirit. And so as we look at this messiness on this side of it here, God is accomplishing things, as Job said at the end of his uh, story, when uh, he repented after God confronted him. Remember the last thing Job said was, where are you? If you would come and listen to me, you would repent. I love the story of Job. And God shows up. I'm convinced with a twinkle in his eye and says, here I am. You want an audience? You got it. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Surely you know since you were there, right? Uh, I think it's a little bit of divine sarcasm. And after a la- chapter and a half of being humbled, he says, uh, Job says, I repent. And God said, oh, no, 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 we're not done yet. And then he has a second test. And here's where the whole book is heading. Would you really, Job, annul my judgment? It was my decision what you just went through. Would you really annul that if you had the chance? It's a spectacular question that opens up the entire Bible and Job's response explains everything that goes on in the Bible. He says, now I really am sorry. I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. He went through a year of intense pain. He lost all of his children. He lost everything he had. And he went through a year of pain, all so that God could say to Satan, his faith isn't going to fail. Go ahead. Throw everything you have at him. And he's not going to fail. And most of you have been through some level of that type of, of intense suffering. Uh, some of you, a lot of suffering. I get it. And God is proud because he says, guess what? Jim's faith isn't going to fail. And so he said, would you really know my judgment? He could have blamed it on Satan, and he doesn't do that. 
And so Job's final response gives us insight into the rest of the scriptures. He said, I am sorry. I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. And that's what the parables are teaching us. We live in this fallen world. This is where we exist. But 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. That's actually over here. And we're trying to learn how to live in this world and understand it from this perspective, not from this perspective. When we're over here, it's all gloom and doom. I mean, all you got to do is read any, any of the media outlets and you think the world is you know, going to hell. Maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> Feels like it sometimes. But that's not the reality. Our reality is right here where we believe in a sovereign God who's actually making decisions on what's happening. That's why both Paul and Peter, at the end of their life, said, submit and pray for the leaders, the government, pray for them. And soon after that, both of them were executed by Nero. He was the one in charge. And they said, submit and pray for him. Let God have his way. Let God have his way. And so that's kind of the background for these parables, because the parables are helping us bridge the gap between this world here and the world where we actually exist. We exist in two worlds at the same time. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we've been raised and are seated at the right hand of Christ. What on earth does that look like? I have no idea. Other than that, this is where we're supposed to be right now. So we live in two worlds at the same time that has been, that the Spirit has created. And the parables are giving us a glimpse of what it looks like in this world while we still suffer in this one. So today we're going to look at a very familiar parable. It's a parable of the ten virgins, and I called the sermon today the challenge of endurance. Every one of these parables gives us a challenge, and um, uh, we're only looking at a sampling of the parables. We could go for a whole year just on the parables, but we're just looking at a sampling. So I'm going to read it to you, Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven, okay, here we are, the kingdom, but we're talking about the present aspect of the kingdom. The the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with the lamps. The bridegroom was a long time coming, but they all became drowsy and they fell asleep. Okay, let's pause just for a minute. This is actually very much what a, a first century wedding would be like. It's very accurate. You see, what happens is the woman lives with her family, her dad, and then the, the, bride, uh, the groom is building a house that's probably attached to his father's house because she leaves and goes and joins his family. So when they get betrothed, he leads, leaves, and he goes over and he starts building the house. He doesn't come back until the house is finished. When he's ready to come for his bride, they don't know when he's going to come. It's very common in the first century world, they don't have the same concept of time that we do, to come in the middle of the night to come get his bride. That was actually common. And so what Jesus is doing here is giving them a story. They're all going, ah, we get it. And the the merchants would have stayed open late if there was a wedding going to happen because they could sell things like oil and all that kind of stuff. So So while they're waiting, they fall asleep, okay? And we don't know when they're coming because he might be negotiating on the dowry. Okay, yes, he had to pay a bride price for his bride. Sorry about that, women. The world is changing very slowly and we're in a different place. It's real intriguing to me that our weddings today actually still honor these ancient traditions that we don't believe in anymore. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Well, when this was all written, you were owned. 
You were property, and that still has made it into our traditional weddings. I keep waiting to do a wedding where the bride says, ah, I don't want that in my wedding, you know? And so we've turned it into something of honor, but in the first century, it was ownership. It was about ownership. So he could be negotiating the dowry, what he's going to pay for this bride, okay? Maybe she's worth three cows. I don't know, okay? I just thank God I don't live in that time period. I live in today's world. So they don't know when he's coming. They just know that it's coming today. So they get a little tired and they fall asleep. And we're going to look at a passage in just a minute where Jesus describes us in terms of this wedding imagery right here. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. So the uh, watcher on the walls, you know, whoever's in charge, uh, yells out, here he comes. I can see him coming. So all the virgins woke up immediately. They trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. It's interesting that these five foolish virgins didn't prepare. Okay. We're going to be bringing this into today's world because that's what parables are designed to do. How many of you masquerade as Christians? I can't answer the question. All I know is Jesus says, narrow is the way and few there are that find it. Listen to what he says just before this in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You're a pretender. You don't really believe. So now we're back to this. These foolish ones were not prepared. The wise ones were. And for those of you that have served Christ for any length of time at all, you understand that discipleship is a test of endurance for a whole life. And every step of the way, Satan's doing everything he can to get us to bail. It's hard. Some of you have been through stuff. I mean, I've been through a lot, but some of you got me beat by a lot on what you've been through. And that's Satan. He wants nothing more than to derail you. How many of you masquerade as a Christian? It's a good time to wrestle with that. Because once your faith is genuine, then the hard part begins. Oh yeah, we're promised joy if we walk by faith. (coughs) I get all that. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) But that's when it gets hard. What did Jesus say? Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up his cross. Okay, you know what they saw in the first century? They saw crosses hanging on the road with dead people on them. This wasn't metaphorical to them. This was real life. This is what Jesus says. Okay? This isn't a metaphor. Oh, life's going to be a little hard. You might lose your job. No, he's saying give up your life. Be willing to sacrifice everything you have. And when you become a Christian, it is not easy. That's why the psalmist asks, why is the life of the sinner good? 
That doesn't make sense. And the answer honestly lies, I think, in understanding a little bit about Hebrews. At the end of Hebrews, he talks about that our souls are being perfected. Twice before that, he said Jesus had to be perfected. What does he mean by that? What he means is that that word perfected, and I'm sorry to be a little technical here, but when you look in the, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, that's the word that's used to describe the priest. Before they could go serve in the temple, they had to go through a ritual cleansing period. When they were done, they were perfected. It's not a moral perfection. It's like prepared. It's another way you could translate it. So Jesus, when he came here, had to prepare to become our high priest. It's not his death that made him our high priest. That's what brought atonement and forgiveness. It's his life. That's what prepared him to be our high priest for all of eternity. So at the end of Hebrews, it says our souls, we are being prepared. For what? For an eternity of ministry. That's what? That's the reason this life is here. If God just wanted you to be perfect, you know, to be completed, he would just take you home. But he leaves you here on purpose. And then you begin the hard, arduous journey of weathering the obstacle course. The afflictions that get thrown your way so that you can learn what it means to live by faith. You could be one of the wise ones, not one of the foolish ones. So they weren't prepared. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to mooch off the five that were prepared. And they said no. And so while they're on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Now, here's the surprise. This is what got them. They're all going to be sitting here listening to this going, well, yeah, the foolish. I mean, if they didn't have their stuff ready, that's their business. But here comes the surprise. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. And what does he say? Truly, I tell you, I don't even know you. That's the shock right there. Because that's not what they would have done in the first century. And he's, he's giving us a very clear picture. All through the Old Testament, God is talked about, the Father is talked about in terms of the bridegroom, and we are his bride. It's all throughout Isaiah, Jeremiah, several other places. And he's saying, no, there's a line in the sand. There's a time when that door is going to be closed, and you're not welcome. You're simply not welcome. And so I raise the question again. How many of you are pretenders? It's interesting, over all the years that I've served Christ, I've had the privilege of leading a lot of people to the Lord and just the way he's placed me in ministry and life. And I'm a skeptic, been born a skeptic. Sorry, I just am. I don't take anything at face value. When I read somebody's opinion, I go and research to see if I agree with it. When I sit in churches and pastors give me verses and says, you know, Matthew says this, I go look it up and find out at least over half the time that's not true. That's not the verse they were thinking of. I'm a skeptic. I'm a skeptic at the core. Okay. And um, so when I've seen people come to Christ, you know what I think on the inside? I get a grin. I say, we'll find out. Because you're going to become faithful or you're going to get drug through the sand. You all know the serendipity prayer, two sets of footprints, right? Well, what's that one set? That's where I carried you, Jesus said. Well, there's one that appeared on Facebook that I really love. What's that line in the saying? That's where I drug you kicking and screaming. <laughs> that describes the Christian life. 
in this world, you will have tribulation. So I honestly don't know, but I watch people's lives carefully to see what comes their way in the way of struggles. Every one of our elders, before I'll even recommend it to the elder board, they have to have been, their faith has to have been tested in some great way, some powerful way, right? Because that's how, how do you know your faith is real if it's never tested? If it's never tested, it's just belief, and that's not the same as faith, not in, not in the scriptures. So the last thing Jesus says here is, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So I have two questions. Well, two thoughts. One is, and again, I don't know the answer. How many of you are pretenders to the faith? Please, please believe. Please. But for those that are authentic in their faith, listen to what Jesus does with this in John 14. This is a, he's using this example of the wedding. He's talking to his disciples, John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. These are for those of you that whose faith is authentic and real. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. The older translation is mansions. That comes from a Latin word. This word, many rooms, is a noun uh, that is equal to the verb in the chapter before and after where he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. Right? You're familiar with that? Those who are true believers remain in the Lord and they cling to him when something comes along. Well, this is the noun form for that. And so we translated, there's many rooms, but really what it's saying is there's many, many places to, to live in personal, in personal relationship with God. There's no end to the places that we can connect with God, okay? So listen to what he says. In my house, my father's house has many rooms, many ways, many places to connect. Now, before I take you too far down the trail of, does that mean every other religion? Listen to what comes next. If that were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you just like the groom does. And he goes and prepares a place. And when he's done, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you also may be with me wherever I am. You know the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I've made it a lifetime of study of all the ancient, of all the religions in the world, as many as I can, wherever I go, Hinduism, Buddhism, Voodooism, all of those, because I go teach in those countries, I have for 25 years, none of them offer this. None of them. Christianity is the only one. The only one. So I leave you with two questions. Are you a pretender? Be warned. Be warned. It could happen right now. Could happen right now. Could happen right now. We don't know. If your faith is not real, then I beg you, I implore you to pause 
just to pause and think about this. I believe in Jesus. I'm not bragging. I have five earned degrees. I've spent my life studying this as much as I can. I'm not an idiot. And I believe. Do you? Is your faith real? For those of you whose faith is real, praise the Lord. You have incredible treasures waiting for you. Incredible treasures. We're going to take the offering in a minute. We're going to celebrate communion. For those of you that are visitors, this is how we finish our time. Believe it or not, they're both acts of worship. The time of offering is when you wrestle with your own heart and how generous you want to be. That's up to you. I'm not God. I don't pay any attention to it. It's between you and the Lord. And then when we get to communion, we reverse the process and say, we reflect on how generous God is with us. If this story is true, that he sent his son as a sacrifice, not only to forgive us, but to show us the way. I am the way, Jesus said. To show us the way. If this is true, and I believe it is, it's the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. And that's what we believe. Father, thank you for... Thank you for your incredible goodness. And Lord, I do pray for those that are here right now that are perhaps sitting on the fence, not sure what they would believe, what they believe. I pray that your spirit would guide them so that they can say, I believe. I understand, Lord, like the Father and John, I believe, help me with my unbelief. All of us struggle with unbelief as well. But for our faith to become authentic and say, I truly believe in Jesus. I pray, Father, for them. I pray for those of us that have already made that decision that you would continue to give them strength, wisdom, courage to endure, wisdom to know what to do, and the courage to live it out by faith. Thank you, God, for your goodness in pursuing us, never letting us go. Not one of us here have you ever let go. And I'm grateful for that. We pray these things in your son.